1: Earlier this month, the Lori Lightfoot administration announced a billion-dollar-plus investment in affordable housing. That's on top of what's already been spent. Front and center charged with making the plan and the Department of Housing work better than ever is Marisa Navara, Chicago's Housing Commissioner, and we're going to talk with her about that mission. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Commissioner Marisa Novara is my guest for this Christmas weekend program. She's led the Department of Housing since mid-2019, and she came to the job with the intention of making sure every Chicago ward participates in meeting the city's need for affordable housing. It probably helps to have a mayor who instructed her department heads to look at every policy through a lens of equity. Before joining the administration, Commissioner Navarro was vice president of the Metropolitan Planning Council under Mary Sue Barrett. She spearheaded the MPC segregation project in 2017 that charted the multi billion dollar cost of racial and economic segregation in the city. And she's won praise for the housing department's efforts and her tenure, but there have been some grumbles, both from those who feel their areas have enough affordable housing already, and others who feel the city isn't doing enough. These are not easy issues, but we're going to explore them. Marisa Navarro, welcome.
2: Thank you, Craig. Great to be here.
1: Um, High profile housing commissioners are pretty rare in this city. But the uh, administration's made headlines this year with a number of affordable housing developments in different parts of town. Uh, Let's start with the one point three billion dollar one that I've mentioned at the top. Much of it is American Rescue Plan money. Most of it is borrowing. But first, let's talk about what this money will do.
2: Sure. And, and actually, I will, I will note that most of the dollars that we're investing here come from federal low-income housing tax credits. That is the country's biggest way of funding affordable rental housing. On top of that, which we get an allocation of each year, we have added Chicago Recovery Plan dollars. We have added things like tax increment financing and so on to get us to the single largest investment we've ever made in affordable housing in this city. Uh, So that's the makeup of the dollars, and we are very gratified that that at this point, we have been able to make an investment in 24 different developments in 20 different communities across the city. That's more than double uh, what we were able to do in our last round of funding in
1: 2019. And how much of this housing is going to have the kind of what we've come to call wraparound services? that many low-income people might need to stabilize their lives and improve things for them and their chances for for bettering their housing along the way.
2: Sure. Well, it's interesting that the site where we held the announcement on December 6th was in a site that is a single-room occupancy building where, um, which is the type of place where we do see those kinds of on-site services for people. So we're very much, we were very purposeful in holding the event there because we are not only investing in the rehab of existing units that are there at uh, 18th and Wabash, but we're also doing the construction of new units on a vacant parking lot next door uh, to create uh, a new set of single room occupancy units that have those kind of services on site. So some developments do have those, some do not. Overall, 90% of the units provided are affordable.
1: And when we say affordable, because unfortunately, we've gotten used to hearing these words and they kind of just, you know, hang out there and we think we know what they mean. What does it mean when we say affordable housing?
2: Right. I'm really glad that you asked that, actually. Um, So typically, low-income housing tax credits are affordable to people at 60% of the area median income. That means it's about $58,000 for a family of four. What we know in the city of Chicago is that most people we would categorize as low-income make a lot less than that, about half of that, actually, or 30% of the area median income which would be, you know, more in the $25,000, 27000 for a family of four. So what we did uh, was to make a change to our policy and say that we'd like to see a range of incomes covered so that we can get down to some of those lower incomes that we know we have a need to meet and um, in exchange reach a broad range of low-income folks. It's not a monolithic term, right? Um, and so so it's a range and we are making sure that we're meeting very various needs. And the other way that we reach a range of incomes is that we partner with the Chicago Housing Authority, which is able to get to very low-income individuals and the Chicago Low-Income Housing Trust Fund which, again, serves only people at 30% of the area median income and below. So between the tax credits, the Chicago Housing Authority and the Trust Fund, we're able to reach, and then we have some market rate units. So between all of that, we are able to reach uh, a broad range of incomes, which is what we think is ideal.
1: And when you're talking about getting down to the area, to those lower, lower incomes, um, does that mean that the the rents themselves are lower or or, or how how is that handled?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the rule of thumb is that we are looking for no one to be spending more than 30% of their income on their housing. And that's true across the board. That's a goal, whether you own your home, whether you're renting your home, a rule of thumb is we don't want folks spending more than 30% of their income. Because if you're spending more than that, it means you're likely not able to fully fund the rest of your needs right your utilities your food your any other expenses in your life so so what we're doing when we reach people at that low level of income it means we've got to bring the rents down to a low enough level that it represents 30% of their income or less and that requires a great deal of subsidy that's why it's hard to do and why it's easier to fund housing for people making higher incomes than lower because you've got to put a lot more subsidy in
1: Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, I mean, affordable housing has been talked about regularly in city government, Uh, certainly in the the few decades that I've been covering it. Mayor Richard M. Daley often held groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings. But in reality, what has the landscape really looked like in these recent decades when it comes to actual affordable housing and how much is available in this city?
2: Well, I will say a couple things to that. And some of some of my answer is about our, our national context, and some is about our local. So nationally, there's not a city in this country that has enough money to fund its affordable housing needs. And that's just because as a country, we have chosen not to treat housing that you can afford as an entitlement. So one in four people Uh, who qualify for a subsidy to help make their housing affordable actually get it in this country. So that's just true across the board, and that's how we've chosen to function as a country, unfortunately. So the way that plays out then on the ground in a city like Chicago is that we have about a 120,000-unit affordable housing gap, Um, meaning we need 120,000 more units than we actually have today. And we simply don't have the resources uh, federally to to fully close that gap at any given point. So what we can do is a range of things to try to do what we can better and to try to put more of our resources to bear. And that's what you see in this announcement. So you know what you've seen today, we did an analysis of our own uh, low income housing tax credit program. Um, and we did what's called a racial equity impact assessment. And what we found when we looked at the last 20 plus years of our distribution of of, of low income housing tax credits was that more than 80% of that investment was in areas that were predominantly low income and predominantly African-American. And what we set out to do in this administration, and really we set our vision, our vision is the equitable distribution of affordable housing across all 77 communities so that every Chicagoan can choose and remain in quality housing. That's affordable, safe, and healthy. So what that means is we are absolutely going to continue to invest in communities that have been disinvested in and redlined uh, for due to racist policies for the past hundred plus years and we are going to very deliberately establish options for affordable housing in areas that are higher income and that are gentrifying as well.
1: When know you're talking about going to all 77 of the neighborhoods. Let's face it, some sections of this city, how can I put this politely, seem to have an abundance of affordability. Uh, you know, the south and west sides uh, have as I mean, lots and lots of affordable housing. And then there are other areas of the city where it seems to be out of reach for even working class people, let alone low income people. That's a big imbalance, isn't it?
2: Oh, it, it absolutely is. And one of my fundamental views on this, Craig, is that if you need a subsidy to live affordably, you should have just as many options of where you can live as someone who does not need a subsidy. Right now, we're very far from that reality. Um, But, you know, what I see as our announcement last week really got us 2,400 steps closer to that, 2,400 units. And we are very deliberately establishing more options for people across the city. And I can give you some numbers to the imbalance that you say. I mean, we've looked at, communities that have less than 5% of their rental housing is regulated affordable housing. And we have parts of the city all on the South side where it's higher than 30% of their rental housing. And we even have one example where it's um, more than 80% of their rental housing is regulated affordable housing. So the imbalance there is quite profound.
1: Now you have had to deal with, uh, the response to efforts to correct that imbalance. And some neighborhoods are welcoming it, some are not. Um, Some see subsidized housing as something that I believe the uh, catchphrase that those of us who grew up in the civil rights era remember is changing the character of the neighborhood. Uh, And what do you say to people who make those arguments even today?
2: Well, I can tell you exactly what I said last week in uh, to the zoning committee as we were considering a development uh, right off the Cumberland Blue Line stop near O'Hare uh, that had nearly 60 units of affordable housing proposed. So it was a majority market rate development, but with 59 affordable units. And um, and I said a couple things in my uh, in my testimony to the committee. I said that our belief is that all communities need to contribute to the city's affordable housing needs and that means all communities. I also said that um, we our belief uh, from the mayor to my colleague at the Department of Planning and Development and myself is that, Um, these are citywide issues and not only local issues. So when we talk about access to jobs at O'Hare, when we talk about access to transit, when we talk about access to affordable housing, those are citywide issues. And I wanna be clear that that's not, I'm not saying there's no role for local input because I think local input is quite important. And I know it's the job of elected officials, and it's my job as an appointed official too, create the space to hear from people locally and make changes. But what I also said was those conversations need to have parameters and the conversations need to be about how we do this, not if we do this. So how are we going to create access to jobs? How are we going to create access to transit and how are we going to create access to affordable housing? Not a conversation that says, should we do this or not?
1: Can you, a highlight, do you know of any success stories where um, maybe initial resistance was met with eventual acceptance, or maybe even neighborhoods where the diversity of the housing was embraced?
2: Well, actually, I could speak to one in my own backyard. Uh, I I live in Little Italy, and uh, I live right next door to the former Abla public housing development there. And years ago, this is this is while I was at Metropolitan Planning Council, not in this role. Um, there was a proposal to rebuild on one of the vacant lots on Taylor Street, a uh, library on the first floor and majority public housing. There was some mix, but it was majority public housing above the library. And there was um, a quite a bit of pushback uh, from local residents. And hearing a lot of the things that one often hears. Um, what about parking that's too dense for Taylor street? Uh, what, you know, there's going to be more crime, things of that nature. And I, and I, I, I saw some really important things come out of that process. One was, there was, um, a process of listening and adjusting. So out of this concern that, a uh, you know, six-story building felt too tall for Taylor Street, the architect did make some adjustments on the building. So it presents to, on the block as a three or four-story building, and then the, it sets back and the rest of the building rises further back. So you don't feel it as a as tall of a building from the sidewalk. So that's an example where there can be give and take and discussion at a local level that, that is taken into account. Um, and then and then it proceeded and I went to the grand opening uh, of this space. And by that point, I was newly commissioner at that point. And um, I went to the grand opening, beautiful library, beautiful units above. And I have to tell you that one of the people who had been pretty vocally opposed to it and had come down to City Hall to speak against it in committee, just as I had come to speak for it and so on, came up to me and said, you know, I did not have a way to envision what this would be like. And I just couldn't picture it. I hadn't seen something like this. And now that I've seen it, I can see that I was wrong. And I think that was very instructive for me that sometimes people just need to see it because we have had a very negative history based on the racism in this city and in this country of creating spaces that were not welcoming and that did do damage to communities. And so sometimes people just need to see it and feel it and touch it. Um, And then they realize that this is not only not bad, it's actually an asset for their community.
1: You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. My guest this week is Marisa Novara, Commissioner of the Chicago Department of Housing. I do want to touch on the... uh, Glenn Starr O'Hare development for a little bit uh, more. And that's the one you were talking about, near O'Hare. Uh, and that's the, this got um, transformed, at least during the council debate, into a supposed attack on aldermanic prerogative. And you've addressed that a little bit, but when these kinds of issues get Roped into more political things, um, how difficult does that make the job? because yes, for some people, this is a battle about whether or not older older people uh, will retain any control if at all in their neighborhoods
2: right, and I you know I think this does get to some of the tension, and and in some ways it can be a healthy tension in the roles that are played between elected and appointed officials. Um, It is a tough job as a local elected official when people are calling for something, um, not unanimously, but but when there's there's some pretty strong voices saying uh, that they don't want something. It's a hard position to be in. And I think what we can do in city government is to be the voice that says, uh, again, we need to reorient this conversation to how, not if. So how can this become a development that is an asset in this community? And sometimes there are things we can change. Like I mentioned, um, You know, shifting the height of the building on Taylor Street, there are things that we can do. And sometimes we have added more parking when people had concerns about that. And sometimes the message is, I, we hear what you are saying, and this is a citywide issue. It's not only a local issue. And so we proceed.
1: Your department is, and you kind of touched on this already, uh, is is one that has to deal in partnerships. Uh, and so what I'm going to ask about now is gentrification, which is partly a planning department issue as well. but how can the Department of Housing keep neighborhood residents who are already there from being pushed out or priced out of their apartments and homes by new development in their areas? Especially, just for example, the Invest Southwest is bringing investment into commercial corridors. Uh, that can change neighborhoods and make them more exciting, hotter neighborhoods. What do you do to keep those people from being victimized by progress?
2: Right, right. Well, you speak to a really important tension because I think most folks, uh, and I say this as someone I, who lived in North Lawndale for 12 years, I mean, my neighbors in that context wanted more amenities in their community, and they also wanted to be able to stick around and enjoy them. Um, if and when they arrived, right? I think that's that's what we hear from people at the community level as, yes, I want a grocery store. Um, I want places I can go to shop locally um, and I want to feel safe and I want well-lit transit stops and I want all of those things. And when they come, I want to also be able to still afford to be here. And so I think really there's a very a, a more proactive role for government to play in that context. And so... I can give a couple examples. Um, One is that in the wake of the uh, announcement that the Obama Presidential Center was coming to Jackson Park uh, and concerns about what impact that would have on uh, real estate values in Woodlawn, the neighborhood directly to the west of it, uh, we came in and partnered with, we created a working group, we worked with the, the elder woman, and we eventually settled on an ordinance, the Woodlawn Housing Preservation Ordinance, that proactively established a series of programs that we are now enacting uh, to ensure, our goal really was to ensure that everyone who's in Woodlawn today who wants to stay there can stay there, and that we're also a part of helping build, build back a middle class in that community uh, that it has seen a lot of erosion of in the past couple decades. So before, long before a shovel broke ground on that, we had established those programs, we had committed dollars to them and and are in the process now of rolling them out. Another one, another example I'll give, um, came as part of this $1 billion announcement, which was that we uh, went out and proactively acquired a site in Pilsen, which has experienced intense gentrification over the last Ten to fifteen years and loss of Latino population, and here we had the single biggest vacant site in Pilsen, and um, and it was owned by a private owner, and it was kind of stuck in a quagmire, and um, we spent about a year negotiating. Um, with them to acquire that site. And we intend to for it to be developed as affordable housing and community amenities. And, and I really want to credit the mayor with the, you know, support for that, uh, to say, we are going to take, we're not just waiting to sort of see what developers come to us with, we are taking a step as city government to proactively intervene here and try to create and preserve as much affordability in this community as possible.
1: Is that the kind of thing that you can do in more than one neighborhood? It sounded like the property in Pilsen was an unusual feature where you had that much land that uh, wasn't being used. Is, Is that something that can be replicated in other neighborhoods?
2: Well, we do own a fair amount of land as a city. Um, in certain communities, uh, quite a bit. In Woodlawn, we own 208 um, vacant lots, and the difference being there that they're not. You know, this this site in Pilsen is a six-acre contiguous site, so that is um, a pretty unique feature, I would say, in the heart of Pilsen. Um, But there is a lot that we can do and and it isn't, we often think of vacant land on the south and west sides of the city, I think as um, something that's detrimental to these communities but it is an asset from the sense that um, we have some control as a city in ensuring what kind of development happens there. And that's, um, we intend to use that for good. And so in Woodlawn, we're in conversations with community groups there about how we ensure that deeper levels of affordability are, um, you know, are honored on the in the land that the city owns and controls.
1: Um, Another issue that I want to touch on is homelessness, which is also a human services uh, uh, issue as well, but what can your department what is your department doing to address uh, homelessness.
2: Sure. And you're right in noting, because actually in Chicago, this is different city by city, but in Chicago, the bulk of the um, work and certainly all of the services are funded by the Department of Family and Support Services. Um, So on the the service side completely goes through uh, that department. However, uh, we do fund developments that um, serve people that were formerly homeless. And in the Chicago recovery plan, we actually had 65 million dollars allocated to us for one for permanent supportive housing and for creating non-congregate housing. So this is something that came up quite a bit in the early days of COVID was that while we uh, had traditional homeless shelters for people um, that the congregate shelter Setup is not conducive to social distancing in any way. And so we needed to create more spaces. And that was one of the things that my department did in the early days of COVID was to find 900 additional shelter beds that were spaced and that did give people that room. And so now we are continuing to partner with the Department of Family and Support Services to say, could we acquire, let's say a motel, a hotel and convert it to that kind of space for people longer term? Um, because we did see that it was, um, it was helpful to people in that situation, both during a pandemic and non-pandemic. It is helpful to have more of those spaces available to folks who need them.
1: It, it did seem that uh, COVID, to say that something good came out of it, but that it uh, that it did help see another way for dealing with homelessness and it also, I think, in some ways, helped the hospitality industry that was suffering because the city was able to put people in some of those motels. As, as you said, now you're thinking about seeing if you can re- acquire some of those those things. Um, is that uh, a plan? I mean, do you are you seeing that there are properties out there because of what happened to hospitality? where there are hotels that are really kind of begging to be bought? I
2: think there are, there are certainly more opportunities than there were before. And, and so we're deep in conversation in that we have toured, I think, five different uh, properties and are in conversation about acquisition. So we do think that there's an opportunity there. And this has, yeah, one silver lining is that it did show us how that could work and, um, and how effective those spaces could be. At providing that type of care. It's not, the, it's not the only time we've done that. We have done that in the past, uh, but it, it definitely brought it back to the fore.
1: Well, I want to thank you for bringing all of these issues uh, to us, and uh, I hope this won't be the last time we, uh, we talk on this program. Uh, that is Chicago Housing Commissioner Marisa Novara, Thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you so much, Craig. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage. You can also find our podcast on odyssey.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 WBBM.